this series, we have been talking about what it means to desire the glory of God. So it's been the big uh, focus of this series, the glory of God, and we've been talking a lot about what it means to, to desire that and that it means to find our, our, our happiness in the Lord, to find our joy in the Lord, and that the glory of God is the center reality of all things, and that when we find our happiness, our delight, our joy, our satisfaction, when we treasure the Lord, it brings him glory and it brings us joy and it brings us happiness. And we have said that God actually wants us to be happy. He wants you to be glad and to be glad in him. And so when we talk about this, and I am not embarrassed about anything we've talked about, I believe it is completely true. And we also need to make sure that we look at this in a way that is biblically accurate and to realize that we are still going to be in a world that has suffering. That we are still going to be in a world that has tears, and sometimes big tears, and sometimes lots of tears, sometimes tears that that keep on going. And so a question might be, how can these things both be true? How can it be true that God's purpose for you is, is happiness, is joy, is rejoicing, if God is also going to, in his plan, ordain it that there will be tears in your life. And not just tears of joy, but genuine tears of, of sorrow. Tears that come because there is, there is real suffering, that there is, is real tragedy. Doesn't it seem that one of these should exclude the other? It's either happiness or tears. If you're crying tears of sorrow, it means you're not happy, so it's one or the other. And sometimes some Christians, some churches give the impression that you should just be smiley happy all the time. And that's the biblical way of things. And that really, you know, God, for you to, to praise him means you just you ignore the suffering. And God just wants you to be living the dream 24-7. You know, your best life now, health and wealth and all these things. And if you had enough faith, you, you would have that. But that is not the actual message that scripture has for us. Scripture is really clear that there is suffering, that there is, is genuine hardship and trials in this life. And we need to think through how do these things coexist. And let me propose to you that thinking about this topic that we've been going through on the glory of God and this being central, this is something that is essential if we're going to understand this. That there is no way to make sense of these things the way that at least we, we can with God's revealed truth to us, unless we realize that God's glory is central. I think a real key is a verse that we're going to be looking at that is oftentimes well-known and quoted, Romans eight twenty eight, and talks about that God works all things together for good. A problem with that is that a lot of people don't really believe it. They may say it, but you really believe it? And a lot of people don't understand what does it really mean. And I think it is true. It definitely is. And you ought to believe it. You better believe it. I hope it is deep in your heart. But in order to really understand what that glorious verse is saying, you need to understand, we need to grasp what we've been saying in the series, that, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
that the ultimate purpose, why any of us are here, why we are created, brought into existence, is to bring God glory, and that we do that by enjoying him forever. And if we get that, we can start to make sense of things. So as we get into this, as we think about this, the first point I want to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of give you this first point, not completely yet, but if we think about why does God create everything that there is, first point, you fill in your bulletin, God works all things together for, and I just got, I got some blanks here, we'll get that to you, but if, so far you can fill in that God works all things, and that's, that's a big thing to realize, even if we don't know what he's working them for yet, but that God is working all things. God is directing. And notice, he's not just directing some things, but I'm going to show you some verses that I think make it very clear. He is directing. He is working through all things. And then we have to think about what is he working for? What is he aiming at as he works through all things? But God is sovereign over all things. I would love to take 25 messages to just tell you and convince you how God is sovereign over everything, both the good things and the hard things in life. I am absolutely convinced that he is. You'll see enough scripture just in this first point that should convince you, but there's a whole big Bible from Genesis to Revelation that lets you know that God is sovereign over all things. But when we say that God is sovereign over all things, we think, well, well to what is he sovereign? One verse that we've been looking at this series, Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so the Lord God, Jesus Christ, everything is, is from him. He is the source. Everything is through him and everything is to him. Everything comes to him. It is for him. It is for his his glory. It's been a big thing we've been talking about this series. Everything is created for the glory of God. And I want to repeat that. I want to emphasize this. It's something that we need to start with and realize that God works all things together for his glory. Everything that happens, and I literally mean this, from the biggest thing to the smallest thing, eventually funnels to the glory of God. Everything even the most minuscule thing that there is, everything funnels to the glory of God. And whether it gets there directly or it, it takes a while to get there, that's where it ends up because that's God's purpose in all this. God's glory is the, is the gravity well, okay, of all existence. Everything ends up there. You ever see at, I've seen them at the mall, and I think, um, I don't know if they still have one at, at Leo Elementary, but it's one of those uh, things where, do they have, is it still there? Okay, where you put the penny in it, and uh, it's, you know, to collect pennies or coins, and you put it in, and it, it goes around in this circle, and then it keeps going around, and you watch it, and, it's, and it gets to the end, and it spins around. How many of you have seen one of those things? Okay, you've, okay, at least you know what I'm talking about. I think everything in life is like that, and the, it all funnels to the glory of God. Now, some things can get there more directly. I mean, you could take your quarter, and you could just throw it in the middle, and there's things in life that, yeah, it goes straight to the glory of God. But then there's other things in life where it goes around and around and around and around and around. And like two hours later, or, the, or in reality, sometimes it's, it's centuries later. 
but everything eventually gets funneled to the glory of God. I want you to believe that. I want you to see that that's true. So we see that in Romans eleven thirty six. Look at this eleven or Ephesians one eleven through twelve, talking about God, Him who works. Notice all of these verses I'm giving you. It, it says all things. So again, it doesn't mean some things. It means all things. Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, God's will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So again, God is aiming at His glory. I also mentioned Romans eight. 28, a great verse, a very comforting verse that I want you to believe. I want you to store deep in your heart. And this is going to say that God works all things together as well, but it's going to say something else too. So we look at Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things. So again, we see all things. All things work together. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So God works all things together for his glory and for our good. These are what God works things towards. Now here's a question. Does this mean that God has two different goals? Some things he works for his glory, other things he works for our good. But it's one or the other at least. I say, no. If God is working all things together, it is for his glory and it is for our good. That these are simultaneous. These are things that are happening at the same time. And the things that we've been trying to uh, describe in the city, in, in this, in this um, series, are what help us to understand this. We think of Romans uh, 8.28 here and some clarifications that we could say about this. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. This is not saying that everything is good. You know, there are lots of things that on themselves are, are not good things. There is evil in the world. There is suffering. There is death. There is tragedy. There, is, there are accidents. There are things that in and of themselves, uh, they, they are not good things. But what this is saying is that the way that God puts everything together, he works them together with, in the big picture of reality, the big picture of life and history, and this huge story that God is doing, he works them together for good. And it's his good. He gets to define what it is. We shouldn't think, it's, well, I got an idea what I think is good. And so this must be what God is aiming at, what, what my idea of good. No, that may not be the case. This is his idea of good, and his idea of good is, is actual good, is actual, the, the real good. Something we also need to notice is it says who this is for. And it says that this is together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is talking about those that have been saved or will be saved. This is, this is a reference to believers. Those, if you are uh, these are uh, terms that would describe someone that is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Not just someone that is checked you know, on their Facebook profile that I'm a, I'm a Christian, but it means that you actually have trusted. You've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that you're a sinner and that that's a bad thing and that you need someone to save you from that sin. You're not making excuses about it. 
You've given up the, uh, the project of trying to earn your way to heaven, and you've, just, you've come to him, you've declared a spiritual bankruptcy, and you come to him as the one to save you. And because of that, when you come to him, God moves in your heart as, as this is happening, and, and now you love him as your Lord and, and your, your, your Savior. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your, your desire. We grow in this throughout our lives, but if you don't have love for Jesus, there's no way you're a real Christian. Okay, I pray that you would become one for real and that you would know his salvation and that he would, uh, from his perspective, he's calling you according to his purpose. So this is referring to those who have been or will be saved. And that God, in his plan, he is, he is working everything together for, for those, the good of those. Because let's be honest, you could say that, well, God works everything for good, and oh, this bad thing happened to me, uh, but I guess, you know, something will be better tomorrow. But if you end up rejecting Christ as your Savior, and you say, I just, I don't want him, I don't need a Savior, I don't want a Savior, and you end up in hell forever, there's no way you can say that things really worked out for your good. They can. The offer is open to you, but you need to come to Jesus who is calling you. And when that is true, everything does work out to your ultimate good. Maybe not in this life we're going to see. There's ups and downs, and we might see some of these things, but ultimately and eventually everything for your good. But this is for those that the Lord in his plan, in his purposes, that um, that are saved, or that in his plan he knows he will be saved, that we'll turn to him and, and come to him. And I hope that is you. The offer is, is there for you. Again, but we think about what does this mean? So often this verse gets quoted and we mean something like, well, you didn't get the job, so God must have a better one planned for you. So that's what it means. Or, you know, you got that flat tire on the way to work and that was really pain, but guess what? There was a six-car pileup down the road, and God prevented you from getting in that six-car pileup because you had the flat tire. So God works everything for your good. Or some people think you're sick now, but you know God's definitely going to heal you. That's what it means. I think there's a problem with viewing this passage as meaning something like that. Uh, one, life doesn't always work like that. You know, there are times you can point to, and we can see that God allowed something hard to happen, and there was some kind of immediate, you know, payoff or something that was good, like, okay, I see that. But it doesn't always work like that. And also, that is too shallow. It is not enough. It is not ultimate enough. It is still making our ultimate treasure just here and now in this life and in the immediate future. And I think God is talking about something even deeper, even more long-lasting than that. God is not, again, not working either for God's glory or for our good, but for those of us that will know him as Savior for both his glory and our good. So when we put all these things together, if I want to put them in just kind of a, a, kind of a logical form or thinking through the truths of this, let's, let's put it like this. One, God is sovereign over all things. He really is. He's, he's in control of everything. That's, we have to believe this. Otherwise, if things are out of control, then God might be trying his best to, you know, let's see if we can salvage this. But he doesn't really have a plan. He's just, you know, making things up and patching things up the best that he could. But I believe God is sovereign over all things. God causes all things to work together for his glory. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who will be saved. 
That's what these verses we looked at have been saying. And this is how it connects. This is how it comes together, and both of these things are true, is that God's glorification is the highest good for those that will be saved. Remember, this is describing believers as those that love God. You love him. You are treasuring him. It's not just that you came to him to get your get-out-of-hell-free card, but as he has given you this newborn-again heart, it's a heart that instead of running from him, you, you love him, you, you treasure him, and you're finding your delight in him. And when we do that, he is glorified. He made image bearers, he made us to find our delight in him, and this is how he is glorified the most, when we can appreciate it, when we can treasure him. And this gives him the glory, and it gives us the joy. We glorify him by enjoying him forever. This beautiful, awesome win-win situation that the Lord set up, sin wrecked this, but God in his restoration, his redemption, is putting this back together for those that will trust him as, as Savior. God's glorification is this highest good. Therefore, for God to work all things together for his glorification is also the best thing for us. It is also the highest good. And this means that whatever God allows to happen, if it contributes to that eventually, if it eventually funnels into his glory, it is going to be what is good for you. It is going to be something that causes you to love him even more. When he shows who he is, when he works in your heart so that you see it, you believe it, that it becomes real to you, you love him more and you will have more joy forever and forever and forever. Anything that causes God's glory to shine brighter will add to our happiness forever. Whether it's the good things in life that we give him credit for and we give him thanks for, but this also means that if there is suffering that God uses, that he turns for his glory and for your good, if through these things we see God for more of who he is in our life, we see it in other people's lives and how they react. Anything like this as it funnels in will cause you, not in just in this life, but even more so in eternity, to have more eternal happiness in him that is forever and ever and ever. So when we think about suffering, we have to start by thinking about God's main purpose for creation. And if you accept that God's glory is central, only then can you accept, will you be able to really accept that anything is worth it, anything is worth it if it contributes to the glory of God. It's one thing to say that, it's another thing to really, really believe that and that it's true. And this means if we say everything, anything at all, contributes to God's glory and to our good, well, this means, we move on to our second point, that God even works through suffering and tragedy for his glory and for our good. Otherwise, you can't really say it's all things. But God works through these things. And Scripture is really clear that God works through these things as well, too. Not just the good things, but, but the pain. I want to talk about this. Because this isn't easy. 
Sufferings are not just theoretical things. You know, and as I, I look around the congregation, I see people, I, I know there are people here that are suffering. I know there's people here that have gone through, there's lots of different types of suffering. Everything from, from, uh, from death to, to sickness to um, trials in life to, to, to loss to accidents to things that just aren't right in life. There's emotional suffering. There's physical suffering. There's suffering, some suffering that, that hits instantly and it is sharp and it is hard. There's other suffering that it, it lasts and it lasts and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And so when I talk about some of these things, and I realize even, I mean, the past, this weekend, a member of in the church has a family member that praying for and grieving with a, a, a baby that comes into the world and then leaves this world. These are hard things. These are real things that happen. Everything that we say about this can't be just theoretical. This isn't just solving some kind of philosophical puzzle. I pray and I hope that God will speak to your heart and help you to realize that this stuff is true. If this isn't true in the real world, if this isn't true when real, actual things happen to us, then we're wasting our time here. But I believe, I believe that these things are true no matter what. I'm not going to be able to say everything there is to say about suffering, but I hope that there'll be enough here that God will let you hear that will give us help. I want us to think about if these are true, how is it that God does work through suffering? How does God do this for his glory? How does God help his glory to shine greater in our hearts through these different things? And thinking about scripture and thinking about this, here's just a few. It's not an exhaustive list. But one, God uses suffering to kick, our way, kick away our idols of comfort and distraction. You know, how many times we ignore God we're not thinking about him because life is going pretty well. And when life is going pretty well, it's really easy not to think about him. We got enough to eat. Things are going well. You got people that, that like you. You got the comforts. You got uh, things you can watch on Netflix and all kinds of ways to distract ourselves. You know, if you get a headache, there's, you can take some aspirin. You can, you can deal with these things. But sometimes God has to, to kick away those idols, these, these false gods that we're depending on, to cause us to realize how much we really do need him. And I think even more in the world that we're living in today, okay, no one here is afraid that you are going to starve to death in the next week. Okay? Through most of you know, the world in history, you know, that may have been true, but not, not now. I mean, the worst thing for that that we have is you know, the store might not have the flavor of 7-Up that I actually want. You know, but we don't know some of these uh, real uh, things that, that cause us to realize our, our dependence on God. But sometimes God, I would say in his mercy, kicks away these idols of comfort and, uh, and, and self-reliance on us to cause us to realize how much we do need him. He does it to get our attention. C.S. Lewis at one point wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
And so often we're deaf to him, and he uses pain for one of his good purposes to get our attention. That in our deafness to him, we would, we would hear and be aware of him. Along with this, God uses suffering to, to push us to Christ, to help us to see him, to, to move us towards him. It's been said that there are no atheists in, in foxholes. People that ignore God, but they, they come under fire as you know, soldiers in the trenches with bombs going off in life. They start praying to God. And often it's true in, in other ways of life, too. And I found that you know, meeting with sometimes families that you know, haven't been around church for a long, long time, and they're going through something, and God usually gets their attention. And all of a sudden, uh, when tragedy hits, people stop being irreligious. They realize, oh, I guess there is, there is a need for God. And sometimes it's temporary, but sometimes God uses that for them to actually really connect with him, to, for them to realize the actual truth that they needed him all along. It's not that we didn't need him, and now you need him when they're suffering. You always needed him. Even in your best day, when you had everything you have, and when you have all your needs taken care of, you still needed him just as much. You just didn't realize it. But it's when suffering and tragedy, these things hit, that's when we realize what's been true all along. You're probably not thinking right now about the fact that you really need air. You're breathing, you're enjoying it, you're not thinking about it. But if all of a sudden the air was taken away or you were underwater, that would be something that would be on your mind. God uses these things to help us to realize that we need him and to push us towards him. Suffering lets us see and experience the loving kindness of God. We say the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the help of God. I chose the word loving kindness to, to summarize all this, the comfort of God. Not just to see it, not just to know about it, but and I believe these things that we're talking about, that those who have gone through suffering can testify and will testify that these things are true. That God shows himself makes us feel his reality in a way as we are going through the hardest times in a way that is just different. He is, he's always real, but he is real to us in our sufferings and in these different times. I think the book of 2 Corinthians, there's so much about suffering in 2 Corinthians. It's a neglected book that shouldn't be. In chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. When God gives a believer suffering, when God, whose father, you are children, we are his children, when he gives his sons and daughters suffering, he is always there with that to give his comfort too. And so that you can know him as this Father of all mercies, this God of all comfort. He makes himself real to us. Philippians 4, 7. 
talks about the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's like you don't know, you wouldn't expect that you could have this type of peace in the midst of this. But when suffering hits and God is there with you, it is real. And the only way you can, you can't even describe it to someone else, but it's real to you. More real than ever before in those moments. The Bible also talks about that suffering makes us realize that Jesus Christ is enough. Then think, you need this, and if I only had this, and these other things, and I need, okay, I need Jesus, but I need these other things to make me happy, or at least this one other thing to make me happy. And sometimes the Lord takes those other things away to make you realize Jesus is all you need. That he is enough. He is the treasure. Another passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about this, sufferings that he had in his life. Let me read chapter 12, starting verse 7. Paul says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had been given, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. And we don't know exactly what this is, and I think it's God's plan that we don't know what it is exactly, so we can relate to him in many different ways. But he goes on and says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, the grace of God is enough. All the things that you thought you need, you don't. There's one essential one thing that you truly ultimately need, and that is God. And Jesus came to give you what you really need, him, himself. Suffering also lets us glorify God by trusting him despite our circumstances. Often we think, well, happiness, it depends on how things are going. That's how little kids think. You know, they say, this is the best day ever if things are going well. And then same day when things aren't going well, this is the worst day ever. You know, I think with my kids, how many days were both the worst day and the worst day ever in the same day? And it's all based on how are things going right now? And in our immaturity as adults, too, we think like that. It's all based on our circumstances. The world's idea of happiness is just on the surface. But the Christian idea of, of joy or this real happiness, this deep happiness, it's beneath the surface. And it doesn't get touched by these external things in the world. Remember the story of Job in the Old Testament? And it was part of this, that, uh, that um, he had these great things going on, but would he still trust in God even if these things were taken away? Would he still have this? And, and he did. So don't judge God's goodness based on your circumstances. He, he is good all the time. He does good. He is good. And he only and he always does good. Joy does not depend on these things. 
In another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 4 through 10, Paul writes, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, by the Holy Spirit and genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God and with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed. Now listen to this. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The Bible isn't hiding it from us that there's all kinds of hardships. But notice what it says. I love that phrase that it has in verse 10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So if you've been taught or if you thought that genuine tears of sorrow and joy in the Lord are incompatible with each other, we have to tear that page out of your Bible. This is saying that as a Christian, those things can happen at the exact same time. You can be having the most tragic, the worst day of your life, and at the same time, always rejoicing deep down because your joy in the Lord, this might be the day that it has never been stronger because God is with you in the midst of the worst tragedies. And that joy, that deep happiness is so deep down, it is not touched by anything that the world or Satan or anybody else can do to you. It is kept safe for you. Genuine sorrow, yes, at least for now, but joy, deep joy at the same time. Our suffering causes our hearts to become more Christ-like. God works through suffering to build our character and to make us more like Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 2 through 5, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I've noticed how many passages talk about both suffering and glory at the same time. There's more than we're going to get through today. We hope in the glory of God, but we, and we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Likewise, in James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials, they, they purify faith. Trials strengthen character. Trials, God uses them. We wouldn't want to choose these things, but God uses them. And he, he causes us to grow through these things. It has been said, and I believe this is true, I think many of you have or would testify to this as well, that nobody looks back on their life and says that it was in the sunshine days that you grew the most. Nobody says that. We look back and we realize that it is in those toughest times 
that God caused you to grow the most, to depend on him, to learn lessons, to have your heart changed that wouldn't have happened without these things, God using together in his sovereign plan. Many people would often say, I would never wish for the suffering I went through, but I would never trade away what God taught me through that suffering. Is there anyone here that would testify to that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know what. Charles Spurgeon said, those who dive into the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And all this, it's not just to make us more, you know, character in a worldly sense, but it's God is in this project of making you more like Jesus Christ. Okay? That is his goal for your heart and your life. And if your heart is more like Christ, it means that you are going to find more joy and happiness in God. When our hearts are not like Christ, we try to find happiness in other things. But as God makes us more like Christ, that, that's what he wants for you. It, it's uh, to make you more like Christ. It's still you, but you're being made like by Christ. But God, but God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, loves God, finds his joy in God. He went to the cross and endured this for the joy set before him. And so the more that you are like Christ, the more that you are, have a heart that is fitted to love him and to experience the joy of God forever and ever and ever. So the best thing he can do for you is to make you like Christ with that type of heart. And if it takes suffering to get you there, God loves you enough to do that to you because it is what is good. You may think this suffering is bad. We look at these things in life and we think, why would God do this? But we don't realize what he's really doing. It's like I remember taking one of my kids to the, the, well, I'll say it this way. I took him to a stranger who stabbed him against his will and when, as, as a small child. I think, well, that's a terrible thing. Why would you do that? Well, it's because I knew that the doctor was giving him his, his shots as a, as, a, as a toddler, and so he, he wouldn't get these other things later on. And we interpret so many things as God being cruel to us when it said God is doing something to us that is for our good, which is his glory, and his glory, which is our good. The more you are like Christ, the more you are receptive to God's deep joy. And last, and this really isn't last, because this is so much at the heart of this, because it's not just for us, but it's for the watching world as well. Suffering lets us display to the world that God alone is our real treasure. When we go through suffering, remember, it's not just for us. This whole world is a stage for God. This whole world is his glory on display. And when we go through these things, suffering lets us display to the world that we are living for a treasure that is beyond this world. We're not just living for the goods in this life. It's like in Hebrews 11, the, the, the chapter of the Hall of Faith, verse 24, 26, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with, God, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. When we go through suffering and we respond well, 
It displays to God. It displays to our neighbors, to the angels, to the watching world, to you know, history that will look back on this, and to, to the universe that we, that you treasure God more than these things that are taken away. It shows what you really value the most. That God is our treasure, not the world, not God's benefits. A lot of people love God because they love the benefits that he gives them. Again, that's what Job was about, the book of Job. Would he still love him if God took away his benefits? Or would he be like the prodigal son that wanted the father's stuff but didn't really want the father? But when we worship God, when we still do, even when the earthly benefits are taken away, it shows that we value God more than anything else. I read the story of a woman named Natasha Zednova. In communist Russia, <clears throat> Sergei Kordakov was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and to persecute Christians with brutality, extreme brutality. In his autobiography, The Persecutor, Kordakov writes, quote, I saw Victor reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha Zednova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer. Victor caught her and picked her above his head and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown, then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious, moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. On a later raid, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. He writes, I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I could not believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she had been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I had first remembered. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. One of my men held her down, and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off in my hand. She moaned but fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cry, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. I was so exhausted I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her backside was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. To Sergi's shock, he later encountered her at yet another prayer meeting. There she was again, Natasha Zednova. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex moved towards Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. 
I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. And he shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her, nobody. For the first time in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering, but here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. Sergei Kordikov never saw Natasha again, but eventually the Lord worked in his life and opened his heart to the love of Jesus Christ, the love that can forgive even somebody that was a persecutor. Looking back, Sergei wrote in his autobiography, and finally to Natasha, who I beat terribly and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me, and I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. Through our sufferings, God works not just for us, but to make an impact on those that watch and see where our treasure is. So as we think about some of these things, do you trust that God is working, even through these hard things? And don't feel like you need to figure out exactly how he's doing it. I believe that God has a a billion reasons for everything that he does. Sometimes we catch a little glimpse and see what he's doing, but other times we only get the slightest uh, bit of, of some of the things that he is doing, maybe. But we don't have to know. We just have to trust that he knows and that he has a plan. One of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges, writes this in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. We tend to make our first priority the gaining of relief from our feelings of heartache or disappointment or frustration. This is a natural desire, and God has promised to give us grace sufficient for our trials, and peace for our anxieties. But just as God's will is to take precedent over our will, so God's honor is to take precedent over our feelings. We honor God by choosing to trust him when we don't understand what he is doing or why he has allowed some adverse circumstance to occur. As we seek God's glory, we may be sure that he has purposed our good and that he will not be frustrated in fulfilling that purpose. So putting this all together, conclusion, God created this world knowing that there would be sin and suffering for his glory and for the eternal joy of all those who trust him something we have to we have to believe if we put all these truths together 
God created this world knowing that there would be sin and suffering. Okay, God does not do the sin. Okay, God is not morally responsible for the sin. But I think we have to believe that God created this world knowing what was going to happen. The fall of Adam did not take God by surprise. He wasn't shocked when this happened. And, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't think this would happen. I didn't think there would be death and, and war and calamity and, uh, and sickness and disease. And, oh, I, I better do what I can to salvage this. God knew when he created this world this would happen, that Adam and Eve would, would freely choose this way. And guess what? God didn't have to create any world. If he didn't think it was worth it, he could have just not created this world. I think he could have created a, a different world where people would have freely did different things. But God brought this world, this, this timeline, this is the one he brought into existence, knowing what was going to happen, and it means that he has a plan, and it's worth it to him in his plan, and that he is good. Things that the world means for evil, God means for good. And a part of it, part of this plan, and God doing this, is he knows that the fallen world is a backdrop that lets God's glory be displayed in all his fullness. You know, if you go to buy a diamond, you see that diamond, they're going to put it in some kind of black background so you can really see what it looks like. And this world, even with all its sin and with all its problems that it has, is a backdrop that God uses so that his glory, which is our good, can shine the brightest in all of its facets. There are aspects of God's beauty and greatness that we would not have known, really known, except in a world like ours. God's grace. How would you really ever know God's grace unless you needed grace? How would you ever actually know God's mercy unless you needed God's mercy, his help, unless you really needed that help. But through this, God who has always been, all of these things, gracious, merciful, God who has always been holy, his holiness shines brighter through this. His justice shines brighter. His victory, because this does not end with perpetual conflict between God and evil. God is victorious at the end. And through this, his glory shines even brighter through all of this. There's an author, Chris Tigreen, who wrote a great book called Why a Suffering World Made Sense. And in this he writes, Your life, whether you like it or not, is a stage. You are not the star performer God is. The opening act of this play was tragic. The middle acts sometimes foreshadow the wonderful finale, but they are often painful, confusing, and just hanging there. And most of the audience is wondering what the point is What's the point of this play is? But the final act will make it all clear. All will be resolved. The star performer will be vindicated. He is already receiving applause from some quarters of the audience, those who get it. The rest of them will break into a spontaneous ovation once they get it too. Everyone, the audience, the other actors, the distant observers, the critics, the stagehands, everyone will be amazed. And God will take a bow and everyone will see sides of him they had never even thought of before. And yes, there is a promise. It will definitely be worth the price of admission. We know that God can work through suffering and evil because the greatest display of his love 
the greatest, the most beautiful thing was also the most evil thing that has ever happened. The worst evil that has ever been experienced by anyone is the Son of God being put on the cross. And at the cross, God's brightest glory is displayed out of the deepest evil. And if God can use that for his glorification and for your salvation, God can use anything. He can turn any horrible, terrible thing and turn it on its head and use it ultimately, funneling it for his glory and for your good. God's glory and our joy is the ultimate purpose for all of our suffering, and it will be worth it. Every tear will cause you to treasure God with more happiness forever. There's no tear that will be wasted. There's no pain outside of God's plan. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And it's not just to you. Remember, this is to all who will be saved. That as people look at you and your story, what you went through, your pain, your suffering, and how God was there for you and through this, and how you treasure God in spite of this, not only does it increase your glory forever, but it increases the glory of all those that see your story as well, leading to God being glorified more, leading to other people having more joy in him, with then God being glorified more and more joy and happiness and more joy and more happiness forever and forever and forever and forever. And if God is going to use your suffering for that, is that worth it? If this is what God's plan is, is there any suffering that you could have that is not worth that? Ask yourself, is God's glory worth this? I pray that God would work in your heart, that you would realize the treasure he is. It doesn't mean that things are easy. Things are hard. But through the hardest things, God will display himself the fullest for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that there is nothing outside of your hand. That everything that comes to us, whether it's the good or the hardest things, are from your fatherly hand. And that even things that other people intend for evil, you intend for good. And Lord, even if we don't understand how this all works and what your plan is, or how this is going to funnel to your glory, Lord, put this deep in our hearts that we can trust you and believe that it, it does glorify you and that it will. And that this, that every tear that we may shed in sorrow will be used by you to increase our joy and the joy of others in you for all eternity, Lord God. Lord, we worship you. We worship you by saying that you are worth it. There is nothing that we would trade you for, Lord God. You surpass all things. And we thank you that you are the God of all grace, the God of all mercy, the God of all comfort. And we praise you that you are the one that sent your son, that Jesus loved us enough to come down and experience more intense suffering than any of us could possibly imagine for the greatest good, our salvation, to bring us to you 
for your glory and for our joy forever. Implant this in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.